For those of us who are not familiar with Jim Elliott, I'll just start with a little bit of the background. Jim Elliott was an American missionary to Ecuador in the 1950s. He went to Ecuador with his soon-to-be wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and with five of his, his friends. They graduated from Wheaton College. They're popularly known as the Wheaton Five. And Jim Elliott was a particularly impressive individual in terms of faithfulness, in terms of reflection upon God. I was recently reading a book by his widowed wife called The Shadow of the Almighty. And one thing I was struck by is just how much his thoughts are centered upon God and how that comes through in his journal entries. For those who are familiar with Jim Elliott, it's very well known that shortly after beginning his, his time of serving God in Ecuador, he made an attempt to reach this tribe known as the Alga people. They were very violent. They had a history of murdering of one another and shortly after making contact with this tribe, Jim Elliott and his four friends were also killed because of a misunderstanding. That part about his life is very well known. Something that's not as well known about Jim Elliott is that before he went to Ecuador, he spent months and months traveling around the United States, visiting various high schools, going to all kinds of uh, different places, places where business people would hang out, places where less savory people would, would gather. And he was going around and teaching about the Bible and sharing the gospel in, in place after place. And there's a, a part of, of the book uh, that, that chronicles uh, some of his reflections on this time of traveling the country. And you might be surprised to learn that he was actually quite disappointed in, in the fruits of his ministry in the United States. He laments over the fact that after all of this hard work, he, he hasn't been, he seemingly hasn't been able to, to make any disciples or, or converts to the faith. I think it's really easy to put a man like, like Jim Elliott on a, on a pedestal and just imagine that he always enjoyed this incredible success in ministry. But he really didn't make many disciples. In fact, I don't, I don't remember um, reading about, about any, I, and I, I could be wrong here. So perhaps, perhaps he, he, he did it in his lifetime and I just don't know about it. But to my knowledge, he, he, didn't, he didn't make any during his life. So he certainly didn't make very many disciples during his life. It was after his death that God, God really used his work to impact people all over the world. And so Jim Elliott had, had this incredible heart for God and this, this incredible faithfulness in ministry for years and years without seeing much fruit for his efforts. And I think many of us can relate to that discouragement of, of laboring for however long at, at various ministries and seeing little fruit for our labors. So the question I'd like to 
talk about with us today from our, our text is what do we do when we're still waiting for God's blessing upon our work? So with that, you can turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 10 through 19. I think. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. In this passage, we'll see that though God's blessing might delay, it will come to those who build his house with patience. Before we get into our passage, a little bit of context since we're, we're diving into the, the middle of the book of Haggai. I've already preached messages on, on the first two sections of the book of Haggai. The short prophecy is split into a total of four oracles that Haggai receives from God. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 are known as the call to action because Haggai is telling the Jews at this time that they need to get started building God's temple once again. It's been neglected by the time Haggai starts preaching for 16 years after the Jews first returned from exile. They began to rebuild, but they were discouraged because of opposition from their enemies. And so Haggai, 16 years later, begins preaching to them, bringing the word of Yahweh, telling them to, to restart the work of building the temple. That's the call to action. The next section of the book of Haggai is the call to courage, where the people have been building the temple for about a month's time, a little over, a little less than a month actually, and they're beginning to get discouraged because there are some among them who remembered how great the, the t- temple of Solomon was, and they're seeing what they're currently building, and it's not that impressive in their minds by comparison. So they're getting discouraged, but God through Haggai calls them to courage. He tells them that he will be with them. He tells them he's going to support them in this work of rebuilding. And he's even going to to bring the, the treasures that were lost back to the temple. The third part of the book of Haggai is what we'll be looking at today. And it's called the call to patience. We see in this section that the Jews are once again growing discouraged in the work. The final section, which we'll look at in about three weeks' time, Lord willing, is the call to faith. So today we're going to be looking at the call to patience. A quick note on the structure of the book here. Many people think that the first and the third oracles are very similar to one another, as are the second and fourth, and I, I agree with that characterization in general. Like the first oracle, the third oracle here talks a lot about Israel's unfavorable circumstances, about their poor harvests, and the confusion that they have as a result of that, and, and the waiting for God to bless them. However, some commentators suggest that the first and third oracles are also oracles of rebuke. So they say that that Haggai chapter 1 verses 1 through 15 is primarily a, a rebuke to the people of Israel 
as, our, as is what we're going to be looking at today. And the second and the third sections of the book are primarily about encouragement. But I disagree with this assessment. I think that the third oracle is also one of encouragement, and I'm not alone in that. One commentator writes, The final promise of blessing that comes at the end of this section seals the oracle as fixedly one of encouragement, but it is an encouragement that is built upon reminders of past sin and discipline. The future hope is being juxtaposed over their former disobedience. And I think you'll see what I'm talking about as we get into this section. So let's read Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, say, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priests answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priests answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work in their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to draw out tw to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. Okay, so I think we could, we could all see there that although the, the passage starts out on perhaps a discouraging note, acknowledging the people's uncleanness, it ends with a promise of God's blessing. Before, before I get into my points here, I think it'd be good to answer a, a question about what's going on with Haggai's discussion with, with, with the priests here. Before that, I'd like to note that the prophetic formula, which is what this, the word of the Lord came to Haggai type saying is, the prophetic formula for the third oracle here is different from the first two in the Hebrew. It's translated similarly in, in English, but it's actually a, a different expression. So the first two, it says something like, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And in this section, and in the, the fourth section, it says the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. And we can see that here because God is, is not 
Immediately talking to the people directly, he begins by talking to Haggai and telling him to, to do something. He tells Haggai to ask the priest this question, and it sets up this staged dialogue between the priests and Haggai, kind of as a, it's almost like Haggai's an expert lawyer, and, and these are, or Haggai's a lawyer, and these are his expert witnesses, the priests. They're the ones with authority to speak about what the law says. And so Haggai has a conversation with them so that he can get their answer on these questions. And it's pretty clear from what Haggai says after that, that he's, he's, this is meant to be addressed to all the people. So this conversation was likely had in the sight of the people. And the point, the, the couple points here that Haggai is making is first that holiness is not, is not as contagious as defilement or the flip side, defilement is more contagious than holiness. Whereas if something, something holy touches a garment and then that garment is used to, to touch some kind of food, that food does not become holy. It's, it's different with defilement. Defilement moves beyond the original source and makes it so that the, the defiled things are then able to spread that defilement. If you look back to the passages in the, in the Torah where the priests are getting their answers here, you'll notice that the, the garment of the priests when they would carry this holy meat would actually be made holy. So it's not that holiness isn't contagious at all or, or transferable, but holiness is less contagious than defilement. Defilement is contagious to the third degree, whereas holiness is not. And Haggai uses this to make a point about the people's uncleanness and the consequences of that because defilement is contagious to the third degree. He says, so is this people, and so is everything they do, essentially. So is the work of their hands, so is this nation. Even the sacrifices that the people were offering in the temple were defiled because the people were defiled. It's almost like the people have this reverse Midas touch. So the Midas touch is a, is a conversation, it's a concept from Greek mythology named after King Midas. And in the story of King Midas, this king who, who loved gold was granted the ability that anything he touches would be turned to gold. That's the Midas touch. And the point of the story is, is, uh, is a little bit different from the point I'm gonna, I'm gonna make here. He, he finds out that this is not such a favorable thing. The food he tries to eat turns to gold. When he's, he's in a state of, of misery and hugs his daughter, she turns to gold. And so he realizes that this, this Midas touch is, is kind of a curse. But in general, we think of, you know, we think of gold as a, as a favorable thing. This is a reverse Midas touch that's being talked about here with the people's defilement. Instead of everything they touch turning to gold, everything they touch becomes defiled. It becomes rotten and destroyed and decaying, just like the people's spiritual condition inside. 
Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna get back to this concept of defilement and what's causing the the defilement later. But before we cover that, there's something else here at the start of this passage that's worth noting, and it's gonna tie into the first point here, which is that past neglect slows our progress when it comes to building God's house. Past neglect slows our progress. Why do I say that? Well, you might have noticed that this oracle starts three months after the people began to build. On the 24th day of the ninth month, they had begun on the 24th day of the sixth month after hearing the word of Haggai for the first time and choosing to obey that. And so they've been building now for three months. And yet it's clear from later in the, in the passage that this is the day that they're first, that they're laying the foundation of the temple. The 24th day of the ninth month. They've been working it for three months and just now they're laying the foundation. That's a long time to, to work before even being able to lay the foundation of the temple. Something else that's, that's even stranger is that we know from Ezra 3 that the foundation of the, the second temple was already laid 16 years earlier when the people began to rebuild the temple. So what is going on here? You have, you have a foundation that was already laid and now the people have been working for three months and all they've managed to do is, is just finish laying the foundation? It's, it's a little bit strange, but I think that's, that's where this, this first point emerges, that past neglect slows our progress. Because we all know from experience that when you leave a project unfinished and sitting around, it doesn't just remain in the same condition it was when you left it. Most oftentimes, it becomes harder to make progress with the project that you had left sitting. The actor activation energy becomes more new problems creep in that you then have to address at the start of the work. And I think this is what's going on with the rebuilding of the temple because they, they had been using this space even though they had not continued to build the temple. We know that they had been offering sacrifices here. And so you can imagine over 16 years that this space that was, was ready for a new building project would then begin to accumulate things, perhaps lots of rubble, perhaps perhaps uh, different things that shouldn't have been there were being moved into the, into the space. Perhaps the, the foundation left neglected without actually holding in anything up and exposed to the elements somehow became damaged. And we know that they had to regather material from the first part of the, the book of Haggai that they needed to go up, the, up to the mountains and gather materials for this second attempt at rebuilding the temple. So between all of these things, gathering materials, clearing out the rubble, repairing whatever damages had accrued to the foundation, these, these people had to do all this work and labor for three months just to get to where they were when they stopped rebuilding in the first place. This teaches us that unaddressed problems when it comes to building God's house only get bigger with time. And we know this, we know this is true in so many things in life. Take 
cancer diagnosis, for example. You, you detect cancer early, you have a far better survival rate because the, the tumor hasn't had an opportunity to grow and for pieces to break off and to move to different parts of the body. And so with cancer diagnosis, you want to detect it sooner rather than later. You don't want to leave it. You don't want to wait to act because then the problem is only going to be more serious. And this is true as well in our Christian lives. It's much easier to start. It's much easier to cultivate habits of intentional evangelism and discipleship. If these, these modes of building God's house, are part of our Christian journey from the beginning, from right after we, we've been baptized. If we're trying to add these things to our lives much later, it's a lot harder to, to change the, the status quo from how we had been living. And just as a side note, this is one of the practical reasons in support of later adult baptisms. Okay, the second point here, now we're going to talk more about this defilement picture. What is the source of the defilement? I would argue that Haggai is teaching that negligence in building is the thing that defiles us. One commentator writes here about the neglect of God's house. The ruined skeleton of the temple was like a dead body decaying in Jerusalem and making everything contaminated. I love that picture because um, it's, it just sticks in your mind. It's so poignant. The, the skeleton of the temple was like a dead body in the middle of the city, decaying and contaminating everything. And it, the commentator is clearly drawing on the, the imagery that's used in, in this passage to say that because Haggai asks this question to the priests about the dead body. I think he's rightly identified the source of the defilement here. This neglect of God's house is what's behind their poor harvests and their unclean sacrifices. The people's uncleanness is contagious to the third degree, and we see that affecting their, their harvests. This third oracle is like pulling back the, the veil between this, uh, the veil for the spiritual reality. It's showing what's going on behind the, the picture that we see at the beginning of the book of Haggai. We learn there that, that God is the one who's, who's striking the harvests and all the fortunes of the Jews at this time. But here we learn, we learn more about why he's striking. It's not just because they've failed to to build his temple, but because in failing to build his temple, they've become defiled. And his striking their, their crops and all the work of their hands is a way of alerting them to this fact. Notice in verse 17, he says, I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me. This is talking about the, the past time when they, were, when they were going about their own business, building their own houses instead of working on his temples. He struck them with all of these things, and yet they did not turn to him. So the, the right response to these misfortunes was to notice that God was trying to get their attention about something. The right response was to turn to him. 
and it was this failure to heed God's evident displeasure at them that made Haggai's prophesying ministry necessary in the first place. If they had responded earlier, then their situation wouldn't have deteriorated to the point where it was necessary for God to, to send Haggai to rouse them to action. I'd like to just apply this, this concept about negligence and building being defiling to our, our own lives for a moment here and ask the question, could some of the sin struggles that you regularly deal with be the result of this sin of omission? Could some of, some of your recurring problems be coming from a neglect of, of building God's house? It's worth us all thinking about from time to time, especially when we don't feel like God's hand of blessing is on the work that we're doing. But there's good news in this passage. It's not, it's not just about a rebuke. In fact, the primary thrust of this passage is supposed to be an encouragement because while the people were defiled, they have since chosen to obey God and now they've been, they've been doing what he, he wanted in building the temple at least for three months. And he tells them this not to discourage Dali, but he tells them this to, uh, to help them to press on in the work that they're doing, to explain to them why their condition was as bad as it was, but also to promise that things are going to get better. So the third point here is that faithfulness in building sanctifies us over time. One common misinterpretation that I read from several commentators uh, interprets Haggai's message in this way. Basically that building God's house is not sufficient by itself. The builders must be holy. Okay, but yeah, that sounds, that sounds like fair enough. It's all right. Uh, one commentator says, God will grant to true blessing when we put his house first for righteous lives. This is technically true. It is important to build God's house with an underlying character of holiness. And I can understand the inclination to read the passage in this way. But I would argue that this is not the message that Haggai is bringing to this people. Rather, Haggai is saying that the choice to build God's house makes the builders holy. Not that holiness is a prerequisite to, to building God's house, but that it's a consequence of building God's house. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to say here that we shouldn't care about cultivating holy lives and that it's not important and that it doesn't have ramifications for building his house. But there are plenty of other scripture passages that bring that message. Haggai's message is that building God's house in itself is a sanctifying work. We know that the people had other problems going on at this time. It wasn't just their neglect of God's house. We know from Ezra and Nehemiah that intermarriage with pagan nations was a huge problem. We know that the governors, the political leaders of Judah were oppressing the poor at this time. And so the Jews had other problems, but that isn't what Haggai calls to their attention. He doesn't, God doesn't say in this book, stop building my house. First, make yourselves holy. First, consecrate yourselves. 
first get rid of your uncleanness and then build my house. He's portraying the, the building itself as being the, the necessary step that they needed to correct their uncleanness, which now they have taken and are continuing it. Haggai does not mention the other problems with the Jews at this time because that's not his focus. Beyond building God's house, the builders aren't called to do anything. Notice in this passage, God, God doesn't give them any prescription for, for removing their uncleanness. And I think that's because they're already doing what he's, he's asked them to do in order to remove their uncleanness. And that he's talking about, he's talking about what their condition was before. I say that because it's very clear there's a, there's a change going on in this passage from before when they were experiencing curse on all the works of their hands and going forward now that they've laid the foundation of the temple, God says they're going to experience blessing. Why would that be? It, it only makes sense to suggest that the underlying uncleanness problem at least respect to at least in respect to to this particular issue has been addressed and dealt with and so god is telling them this as an encouragement for them to keep uh keep doing this work that he's called them to do once again this is not a license to tolerate sin in our lives but it should be an encouragement that we don't need to have every detail of our lives squared away before we can start adding value to God's kingdom because God sanctifies us through the process. I think Haggai is teaching here that personal holiness and kingdom impact actually support each other in kind of a recursive way. And you'll see what I'm saying here in just a moment if, if this is... A little bit too my midi but Haggai is emphasizing the the value of, of striving for kingdom impact in bringing about personal holiness whereas a lot of other passages talk about personal holiness as a, a prerequisite to kingdom impact but it's important to, to understand both of these two things as feeding into for one another so on the one hand you had personal holiness. On the other hand, you had a kingdom impact. Think about building the temple as the activity of kingdom impact. Think about uh, think about cleansing from defilement as being part of personal holiness. In this passage, we see here that the building of the temple is bringing about cleansing from defilement. Kingdom, investment in kingdom impact is bringing about personal holiness, which then means that our sacrifices, which they offer, are going to be clean, whereas before they were unclean. And so this, that feeds into personal holiness, which then feeds back into your kingdom impact offering of, of right sacrifices. It's dangerous for us to emphasize one of these two things over the other. And so it's very important for us to, to note Haggai's message here. We can become so focused on the personal holiness, but if we focus on that to the neglect of kingdom impact, then we develop other problems. We can become paralyzed because we're, we're trying to, to 
deal with with every we're trying to iron out every problem in our lives and and we're forgetting the importance of focusing on other people inside and outside the church and so focus on personal holiness without kingdom impacts leads to paralysis and indifference we become cold to the state of other people and their needs focus on kingdom impact to the exclusion of personal holiness leads to licentiousness leads to licentiousness and entitlement An example of this would be Ravi Zacharias doing so much, outwardly at least, for, for the kingdom of God. And yet, without this personal holiness backing up and, and supporting the work that he's doing, and, and when it was all found out, his kingdom impacts kind of came crashing down in a lot of ways. So, if you try to focus on one to the exclusion of the other, You'll end up in neither. And the emphasis of this passage is, is striving for kingdom impact as a way of cultivating personal holiness. But we also see, we also see the second dimension of that in, in this passage with the offering of unclean sacrifices. So failure to, to pay attention to personal holiness is also, is also hindering the people's ability to have a positive kingdom impact. Let's think about let's think about this this idea that that building God's house sanctifies us in in a few in a couple areas of life here. First of all, there's parenting. Parenting done intentionally can be a powerful way of of impacting the kingdom. And if it's done intentionally, if it's if it's done in a godly way, it's an incredibly sanctifying experience as our parents here can testify to. And the full fruits of a parent's labor in, in raising up godly children, impacting the kingdom in this way, will not be seen until their, their children have, have lived their lives. So it takes patience, and it's a way of investing in God's kingdom, and it's a sanctifying work. There's a, another, another person who illustrates this. I'm sure we're all familiar with Adoniram Judson and, and the incredible work that he did in the 19th century in Burma. He was the first, American, the first foreign American missionary, the first missionary to, the first Western missionary to Burma. And so he, he really made a huge impact for the kingdom. And through what Judson suffered, he was sanctified. And we'll see that in this quote I'm going to read. So this, this is talking about Judson's reflections following the death of his wife and the news of the death of his father as well. It says, Judson began to suspect that his real motive in becoming a missionary had not been genuine humility and self-abnegation, but ambition ambition to be the first American foreign missionary, the first missionary to Burma, the first translator of the Bible into Burmese, 
first in his own eyes and the eyes of men. He had a lust to excel. He had always known that his forwardness, self-pride, and desire to stand out were serious flaws in his nature. Now he began to suspect that they were more than flaws. They made his entire missionary career up to now a kind of monstrous hypocrisy, a method of securing prominence and praise without admitting it to himself. He had deluded himself, but he had not deluded God. Perhaps here was the intention in all these deaths to teach him true humility. For Adoniram's mission, God had approval. For Adoniram and his self-love, a harsh lesson, so it seemed. Wow. That, when I read that for the first time, it just, it just felt like a, a punch to the guy. It's, it's so easy in the process of, of striving for kingdom impact to do it out of, out of prideful motives. And it's, it's definitely important when we, when we become aware of those to take care of that. But the point I want to make from this quotation is that God used the work Judson was doing to sanctify him in this respect. Adam Aaron Judson first committed to going to, to Burma and to laboring for, for lost souls in these ways. And then through what he suffered, God put his, his finger on Adoniram Judson's pride. He drew attention to that through the kingdom work Judson was doing. And so I think that even in this story, we have an example of kingdom impact enhancing or, or leading to greater personal holiness. The fourth and final point I'll make from this passage today is that results are a lagging measure of building with patience. Results are a lagging measure of building with patience. God promises in this passage to bring about the great harvest that the Jews were waiting for. But at the, at the start of the book of, of Haggai, he, he had this, this promise of a blessing for them. He, he said that when they began to build his temple, that he would then take pleasure in that. And so you can imagine that these Jews who have been working hard for three months and they haven't really seen any change in their, their situation, you can imagine that they're beginning to wonder what's going on. Why aren't our, our fortunes improving? We're still waiting for this reversal of fortunes God has promised. We're, we're working hard. We're doing all this, this physically intense labor, and yet we still don't have enough food to eat. We still don't have enough clothes to, to really keep warm. Our, our situations haven't gotten any better than they were before. And so these, these weary Jews are waiting for God's blessing to come to them. They're anxiously waiting to see how this harvest, this year's harvest, is going to turn out. At the end of this passage, God talks about, he asks the question, is the seed still in the barn? I take that to, to mean that, no, it's, it's already been planted. But the pomegranate, the fig tree, the olive tree, the vine have not yet borne fruit. So this, this message comes to the Jews after the time of planting, but before the time of harvest. 
And so there, before the time that there's even any sign of fruit on the trees. So they're, they're waiting anxiously to see if things are going to be any different this year. And God calls them to consider this day three times. First, in verse 15, he says, carefully consider from this day forward. In verse 18, he says, consider now from this day forward. And then at the end of the verse, again, consider it. So he's really trying to get the, the Jews to pay attention to a change that's going to begin starting today. He wants them to mark it so that they can look back and remember that God remained faithful to bring about the blessing he had promised. One commentator writes, God is promising a bumper harvest in response to the people's obedience. There are many correspondences between the Jews of Haggai's day and, and us, and we've already noticed a lot of takeaways from this passage, but it's not, not a perfect one-to-one correspondence in, in everything. Whereas the work the Jews were doing was a little bit distinct from, from the blessing that they were hoping for. The work that we do is, is overlapping. It's, it's closely connected to the blessing we can expect from pouring ourselves into this work. The Jews of Haggai's day were building the temple and they were looking forward to this harvest, this crop harvest. So they were, they were working on God's house and looking for personal benefit in their own lives, which is not, not bad. It was what God had promised to them. But the New Testament brings both of these metaphors together in talking about the same thing. We, we've already learned from previous messages, or been reminded at least, that building God's temple corresponds to the work of building the church. It corresponds to evangelism and discipleship, and that's been an assumption throughout this message as well. But this picture of the harvest is also used in the New Testament to, to talk about evangelism in particular. And so we have building the temple and we have this abundant harvest as two separate pictures, but they come together in the New Testament so that the work that we're doing and the blessing that we expect to receive pertain to the same thing. Unlike the Jews of Haggai's day, God's blessing corresponds to what we're building. And so that's where we can look for the blessing. That's, that's where, where we can expect that God is going to come through in the work that we're, we're doing in order to build up his kingdom. Spurgeon pulls on this, this temple building analogy as well when he says, If God enables you to build 3,000 bricks into his spiritual temple in one day, you may do it. But Peter has been the only bricklayer who has accomplished that feat up to the present. I think that that sounds pretty grandiose for for many of us. And our experience is is uh, not usually or probably probably never um, that dramatic. But the point he's making here is that we're in this work of of building God's temple. We're in this work of laying bricks. And what we get from this passage here is a call to patience in this work. And Earlier in the sermon, I, I mentioned Jim Elliott as an example for us. 
And I'd like to, to return to a similar topic in talking about an example of patience, someone who understood this principle that results are a lagging measure of, of the work of building God's house. Very few people know about Jim Elliott's brother, Bert Elliott. You've probably never heard his name, I'm guessing. I hadn't until recently. Randy Alcorn, in, in a, an article that was published this year, talked about a meeting that he had with Bert Elliott back in 2006. Bert and his wife, Colleen, were missionaries to Peru around the same time that Jim Elliott was, was moving to Ecuador, a little bit earlier, in fact. And Randy Alcorn talks here about his takeaways from his meeting. Oh. He says, at that time, this is, uh, this is the, the 2006 meeting, at that time, he and Colleen were in their 80s and nearing their 60th year as missionaries with no intention of retiring. They were vibrant, still joyfully excited about reaching people for Christ. After returning home that night, I searched online and found only one article with much information about Bert and Colleen. It said they planted over 158 churches in Peru. Of course, Bert didn't tell me that. They served Christ faithfully, almost completely under the radar of the church at large. I will never forget what Bert said about Jim that day to his childhood home. Tears formed in his eyes as he spoke. Jim and I both served Christ, but differently. Jim was a great meteor streaking through the sky. Bert stopped there. He didn't go on to describe himself, but here's what came to my mind. Unlike his brother Jim, the shooting star everyone learned about in Life magazine and numerous books, Bert was a fifth magnitude star, a mere pinpoint of light, rising night after night, faithfully crossing the same path in the sky to God's glory. A star so faint that no one knew its name or pointed it out. Millions have quoted his younger brother, Jim, who went to Ecuador three years after Bert went to Peru. But I've never heard a sermon or read a book quoting from Bert Elliott, not until Gilbert Gleason, nephew to the Elliots by marriage, wrote Love So Amazing. Gilbert writes, Bert and Colleen serve as the right kind of examples for average followers of Jesus, proving that for most of us, substantial supernatural impact is achieved through simple daily faithfulness. Bert wasn't like the sprinter who wins the Olympic gold medal. He was like the clerk or custodian who jogs a nine minute mile three miles a day and over his lifetime runs much farther than the pro who retires at 30. When I read that, I was like, this is an inspiring example of faithfulness. This is amazing. This, this guy can move who labored with his wife in obscurity for years and years in Peru and, and had so much fruitfulness over the course of his lifetime. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the flashy kind of bang type ministry that, that Jim Elliott had, but it was this ministry of constant daily faithfulness. And Randy Alcorn goes on to suggest that he wouldn't be surprised if Bert and Colleen have a reward far or grander um, in, in heaven for the, the work that they did. 
I want to I want to leave us with that example because I think it's once again I think we can we can really look up to someone like Jim Elliott and be like wow like that that was a a really short really potent lifestyle really uh, really potent lifetime and I think for for many of us the the call is is not to a brief and and explosive ministry, but more to this simple daily faithfulness. And that's the, that's the call in the book of Haggai for us, that when the blessing seems like it's delaying and we don't see the fruit for our labors, we need to continue to persist and, and take note because at some point, God is going to choose to bless those who are faithfully laboring to build his house. And we want to be aware of that, that change when it comes so that we can give encouragement to other people for feeling discouraged. In conclusion, I'd like to recap all of the, the points that we talked about in this sermon. First, the, the main point of this passage is that though God's blessing might delay, it will come to those who build his house with patience. We learned, number one, that past neglect slows our progress. Number two, a negligence in building defiles us. Number three, faithfulness in building sanctifies us over time. And finally, results are a lagging measure of building with patience. I hope that we can all labor with patience and come to the end of our lives with a testimony of how God has blessed that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your compassion towards us. Just as the, the sin of the Israelites was great in neglecting your house for so many years, we have committed great sins of neglect against you, I thank you for your faithfulness in, in awakening us up to that, in helping us to see that, and in bringing us to the place where hopefully today we are, are laboring much more faithfully than we were in the past. God, we thank you for how you want to cleanse us from our defilements as we labor to build your house. We thank you that you will bring blessing to our ministries. And I pray for each person in this room. I pray for myself that you would help us to live lives of faithfulness, to be like that star that rises to the position that you have assigned to it night after night. And I pray that we would have incredible stories with which to inspire those after us of what you've done through that patient endurance. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.